Live from Alachua, Florida, I'm Amrita Kaley. And I'm Nam Amrita. Welcome to Nectar Talks from the heart of New Raman Reiti, the largest Hare Krishna community in North America and the home of thousands of bhakti yoga practitioners. In our ongoing interviews, we dig deep into our search for loving connections with Krishna and each other. With you, we hope to uncover the real-life stories and inner journeys of our vibrant community of friends and special guests. Like bees searching for nectar, we seek to extract pearls of wisdom from how they live their lives and the lessons they can impart to us and our listeners. If you're seeking nectar, look no further. All right, let's get started. Hare Krishna, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Nectar Talks. This is lucky episode 10. And um, just want to remind everyone that you can find us on podcasts with uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. If you want to get reminders of upcoming episodes, the best place to do that is to sign up to our Nectar Talks live Facebook page. And um, feel free to leave comments uh, and perhaps even questions for our guests, even though this is pre-recorded. I know they'll very much appreciate that, whether it's on uh, YouTube or Facebook, you can leave comments there. So, America has been completely enamored with Hollywood. It dominates the culture, even on a worldwide scale. We love to throw ourselves into people's lives through the magic of movies. And today there are so many new avenues for production, which I'm sure have drastically changed the inner workings of the film industry with the development of streaming platforms like Netflix and Amazon Video. Well, today we have an opportunity to speak with a man of amazing creative talents who is on the inside of this fascinating industry. Mukunda Michael DeWille is an award-winning Hollywood film director and screenwriter. He is initiated by His Holiness Giriraj Swami, with whom he's traveled as his assistant for several years when uh, Mukunda was a brahmachari. Um, he is uh, married to our lovely Madurika and uh, has uh, two wonderful boys. They've lived here in Alachua for the last four years, moving from South Africa, where they used to live. And um, I'm really looking forward to finding out more about his background and what kind of insights into bhakti yoga we might get from his life as a devotee working in the film industry. So Mukunda Prabhu, welcome to the show. So nice to have you with us. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. And I, I really appreciate you what you guys do on the podcast. Thank you. I grew up in the movement. And um, I, I often used to wonder, um, would I've been a seeker myself if I hadn't um, been born into this wonderful philosophy? Um, so I always find it uh, fascinating when uh, peers of, uh, you know, my age group, the, the next generation of devotees, um, have joined. And uh, I'd love to hear for starters a little bit about where you grew up and what eventually brought you to seek spirituality in your life. Sure. Yeah, so I grew up in South Africa. 
specifically in Cape Town, which is the really tip of Africa. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, it's kind of second world. It's, it's kind of between the first and the third world. It has a bit of both there. Um, reasonably, you know, middle-class family, but I personally was always um, philosophically inclined and wanted to know why was always why, why this, why that. Mm -hmm. And um, that questioning nature um, definitely got stronger and stronger. And um, I was a Christian family. I went to church a little bit when we were younger, but it wasn't a very big deal. And I think by 10 or 11, I think we just stopped going. Um, a, uh, then, I mean, one of the big things that happened with me my elder brother met the devotees and joined the devotees. Uh -huh. And I, it's interesting because I had, I didn't, I just thought that they were strange people and he was kind of dropping out of the world because he couldn't cut it. That right. was, I mean, my opinion. So uh -huh. I wasn't attracted in any way. Um, and then um, the, the main thing that actually happened to me was I went traveling and I actually, uh, I took drugs for the first time mm -hmm. and I got pretty high. And during that state, I realized that my brother knows something. And I mean, I had an out of body experience where I looked down on my body and I remember him saying that you're not your body. I had a realization about karma, how you like a soccer ball and just kicked around. I, I had a realization that there's so much more out there in a conscious level. So, yeah. Um, when I got back to South Africa, I was way more um, interested in him and his philosophy uh, because I was always wanting to know why, why. And so then after that experience, I'd kind of opened up a door of perception, which is a cliche of what drugs can do. Um, right. I mean, one point about this, when I did get high like that, I got the distinct message that you'll, I'll never be able to attain this height again through drugs. Hmm. So that, and so I really thought, well, how do you ever go back down to like normal mundane existence? How do you get this? And I, I remember my brother. So when I got back, I was very intrigued. Oh, these people know something. Mm -hmm. So and with that inquiring and willing mind, I kind of started to speak to him and to go to the temple and so that was a very powerful combination. So previously where I was unable to access Krishna consciousness or the devotees or anything because of my consciousness, now that it shifted and I was way more um, uh, fertile for that. So that changed everything. Then I started to really like the devotees. They were very nice people. They, they seemed like very interesting and sweet and kind people. Um, and the philosophy, it kind of, it rang true to me, but it wasn't like hitting me like, oh, this, I should just give up everything and join these people. Because also I realized, oh, it's crazy. I'm not going to become a monk. And in those days it was really, you joined at Nashram and you gave up everything. Yeah. So, um, but it's a very powerful process to take somebody who's interested and put them in a Krishna conscious environment. Krishna starts to work his magic. And um, that's how I came back. And then for a couple of years, I started working. I got a job in an advertising agency. And um, I, I liked that. I, it, it suited my nature. Um, and I started to get make progress um, in the creative department and move, move up. But it, 
it became pretty clear to me that I wanted more and I've always wanted more. Um, and how old I, were you when, um, when you became open um, and you kind of started talking to your brother more? 21? About 21. Okay. Yeah. And he was, and how old, how much older is he? He, he's three years older. He had probably been um, at Brahmachari for about four or five years. Okay. And when I came back and I saw him and actually looked at him, I realized, oh, this is something. I yeah. saw a real change in him. You know, the devotees are very attractive people by their intelligence, by their kindness. And I saw, I was able to see all of that. And, and that yeah. was very, that was strong. Right. So I was living my life materially and I was make, you know, I was just doing what normal people do. And then I had this other side where I kind of, he would come into my life every now and again. And he, it's funny, he would bring prasad round, but I'd always call it yellow food because it was like turmeric rice, yellow <laughs> dal and like a turmeric soji. And I was like, I never touched the food. Um, that, actually, that actually sounds spot on, <laughs> yellow food. Yeah. So he would come in and out and I was progressively kind of getting, you know, I, I was, you know, I started to smoke, I smoked dope, I'd get drunk, I had girlfriends. I was just living a pretty mundane material life, but I was becoming increasingly, increasingly more dissatisfied. That was like a very clear. And then I'd, I started to look and I saw the future of my life. Like, oh, eventually you become a creative director. Eventually you start your own agency and you get married. With and I was like, I don't want that. I, this is not this. I knew that that wouldn't satisfy me. Somehow I always knew that I needed some other thing and that what the world was offering to me was not enough. Mm -hmm. But like, where, what could I do? Because the alternative was, because he, he was quite strong. He pretty preached pretty heavy to me about the nature of the material world. And I couldn't deny what he was saying. It was right. true. Um, but ah, I wasn't going to join. It's, that's crazy. That's for, that's for other people. You know, that's, but somehow slowly but surely I just was becoming more the material was becoming more and more distasteful mm -hmm. and then in a very short space of time I actually got fired from an agency I was at because I'd lost all interest actually and can, I you, uh, can you give us just a few more details when you say uh, an advertising agency what kind of advertising did you guys do and and you know you mentioned uh, just the, the typical route, uh, becoming yeah. a creative director, just a little bit more background on that, because I'm not so I familiar. With it. As, a, as a writer, they call copywriters, and you write, you know, print ads, radio ads, you conceptualize ads, and then the writer writes them and the art director designs them. Got it. So I was a writer in a team, and then I would move up and I'd work on bigger, bigger accounts, you know, uh -huh. start doing TV commercials. And so I would... It was, I could, I felt like I knew what I was doing and I was getting raises and working on bigger jobs. And I could see the next level was to become a creative director on that. Okay. So, um, yeah, that's what I was doing and, and I enjoyed it, but still it was, it's frustrating creatively to work in advertising because you have a client who tells you kind of what he does and doesn't like. And right. his expertise is not creativity, his expertise is his product. Right. He pays, he tells you what to do. So creatively, I was frustrating. Uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, so I was living that and I was becoming frustrated. And um, yeah, so eventually I got fired because I was 
not interested in what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And they saw that. And then I, um, I was living in some loft apartment, which wasn't zoned for living in. And I got kicked out of that apartment. And I actually broke up with my girlfriend as well. So in a very short space of time, I had nothing. I had no job. I had no place to stay. I had no girlfriend. And I knew, I felt intuitively, this is Krishna, like pushing me to go and move into the ashram. Uh-huh. And I no ways, dude. Um, but I had nothing. So I was like standing there in, the, in like purgatory. Do I go and get all these things again? Do, do I go and get another job? Do I go get another girlfriend, another apartment? which wasn't giving me happiness. So why would I do that? So I, I stalled. I, I went to go and visit my parents in Zimbabwe. Uh-huh. And um, yeah, just to kind of, I don't know, clear my head or figure out the next step. How far is Zimbabwe from uh, Cape it's Town? Borders, it borders South Africa. It's like a t- uh, three hour flight. It's close. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm just really a fascinated by Africa I've never been there so when you say these things I have no idea South Africa and then there's Southern Africa which is like Zimbabwe and uh-huh. a few things in the southern part of it okay so I went there and um I read Prirapalpam Srila Prabhupada's Leela Marita the big mm-hmm. red one yeah and I really um that was amazing because Prabhupada is amazing and what he did was it's unbelievable the timing of it and how he did it all right and I was slowly becoming, you know, more and more purified and attracted. So then after a couple of months there, I went back to Cape Town still with nothing. I had all my possessions in, a, in my car and I would see my brother and he would like, he, w- he knew that I was just close to joining, but still I wasn't joining. So then, and then I was living in, in um, a room on top of a, the um, art department of the university where my friends were staying, we were studying and then on the head there were some rooms on top, which you weren't even really allowed to stay there either. And my car got broken into and all my possessions, my clothes got stolen, most of my stuff. So I really, and then I realized, oh, okay, I'm, I'm just going to join. <laughs> this is too clearly Providence wanting yeah. me to do this. <laughs> but it's right. funny because I went to him and I said, all right, I'm going to join, but I told him I want to stay in that room. And I was referring to the sannyas room because uh-huh. I don't want to just, you know, truthfully, I mean, it's embarrassing to admit, but I, I have, I mean, I, we, I have a false ego problem and I just didn't want to like, like the riffraff I wanted to, I thought I was special and I wanted to. And he said to me, that's not how this works. Uh-huh. And, and I realized, I realized, yes, okay, of course. <laughs> And I shaved up and I joined the temple and um, wow. I yeah, gave up everything and I, um, it was difficult to... What year? Do, do you have an approximate year when this, this was? I think it was like 1995 or 96 or something. Okay. And then, yeah, that was quite intense, um, just in, in a good way, because I obviously I stopped all my bad habits and I started to become purified and it's very liberating and you really like surrender and you just jump off a cliff. You just jump off a cliff. I mean, yeah. I, I just jumped off. I gave up my whole life. I just yeah. gave up my friends and everything. Um, 
but it was and then I it was incredible because you learn I, I gave up everything but then after a while you realize oh I didn't give up anything I still am who I am uh -huh. I'm wearing the same clothes as everybody and I'm doing every so my identity of who I was I didn't lose it I actually it became stronger hmm. that's and, interesting yeah it was fascinating to me that oh all these things that I thought were important to that defined me didn't define me right I am who I am. It's not the external things. And um, of course, then I learned about all the, the philosophy, which is very dynamic. And um, where there was a, quite a strong brahmachari um, ashram there, you know, six or seven brahmacharis and brahmacharinis as well. And it was a very beautiful environment, a family environment. I remember on my birthday, one some of the brahmacharinis cooked a cake for me and we all went to the temple room and we celebrated and it was very sweet and very special and and that kind of sweetness I wasn't accustomed to coming from the material world right I saw everyone as very sweet and kind people and, and it was very very moving and uh yeah my faith increased you know very much and then I met Giriraj Swami and I saw him and he was so grave he was actually the first person that I saw pay um, Dandavats. I actually met him a little bit earlier before I'd actually joined. But I remember looking at him and going, oh, this person is taking this seriously. Yeah. And I really, really liked that because I knew this was serious, a serious business. This wasn't, right. you don't mess around. This is life changing. This is people's souls. And I, when I saw him and I saw his gravity and how earnestly and sincerely he was taking this I was like oh I, I was impressed hmm. yeah so that's how I joined and that's great great and that was uh in South Africa yes Cape Town South Africa right was Giriraj Swami just kind of a a passing Swami or he was based there at the time no, he was GBC for South Africa so he would come and visit a few once or twice a year yeah gotcha okay all right, so you joined there, and um, tell us about, I guess you're, you've become a brahmachari now. Um, tell us about that whole uh, frame of, of your, that section of your life as a brahmachari, and what came after that. Sure. Yeah, so I met Maharaj, and I became convinced about everything, and slowly but surely, I realized, oh, I can do this, which was unbelievable to me because I never thought I could do this mm. and here I was living the life of a monk and it was very very um encouraging and, and confident building you realize oh Krish by attaching yourself to Krishna you you it's great he does it all you know you know you can do these incredible things so I was very um enlivened and I um, distributed books, which was great for my false ego because that needed a lot of crushing. Right. Um, and um, I started to, you know, learn oh what humility was, and just practicing the sadhana of of sattva guna as well is is great relief. You know, yeah. I did all of that, and then um, I, I also from reading Shila Prabhupada's Lilamrita, I realized this concept of serving the guru because that whole book is about how those people. And their guru bhakti made them just do wonderful things. So I knew that. So as I told the authorities, I really want to serve Giriraj Swami. Can I serve him when he comes? So that was a good move. And then I got to know Maharaj and I would serve him. And I developed a relationship with him. 
And um, then one day I got a, a message from the temple president that Marge wants me to travel with him as his servant. And I was like, oh my, that was fantastic. So the next thing I knew I was in India and I was traveling with Maharaj and India was just mind blowing. I remember I, I took a, a plane and then a train and I met him in Vrindavan and I was so overwhelmed that I, I, as I saw him, I was just from the journey, it was like a three day journey or something from being in the Dham, from like the whole in, emotional intensity of it all. I was just my, crying, tears streaming from my eyes when I saw him. And he said to me, um, you performed a lot of austerities to get here. And I didn't know if he meant the trip or the book distribution or previous lives, but yeah, quite something. And then he took me under his wing and I traveled with him. And that was, um, it, it was amazing because you, you see a person who's done this for decades and has made a lot of progress and it's very convincing and you yeah. also see a person who's kind and loving and it, you know kind loving intelligent all of these qualities it's, it's amazing to be around right um, and i saw Do you have I, any uh, any idea how he ended up picking you to become his servant for that period of time um well not a lot of people can be pulled out of a temple. You know, the new people can, or the young people, and only the brahmacharis, because the grasses have jobs. Right. And, um, I was willing, I'd shown, you know, the, the desire. So mm -hmm. I, I think that was the reason, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so you yeah. arrived in India. Yeah. So we traveled around, but we traveled all around the world, you know, Poland and um, England and America and, and it was a whirlwind and it was great. And, you know, you know what it's like with the guru, they just go from one thing to another. And I was fully engaged and all my energy was being used up and I was meeting wonderful people. And, you know, vicariously also the ego gets a lot of, by being a servant, the ego gets a lot of. Right. You're, you're, you're number one close to the Swami. Yeah. Yeah. And I was enjoying that too. And then Maharaj, got ill and he was advised by his doctor very 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 seriously to stop traveling hmm. um like it was very serious and he actually had an open heart surgery it was quite something so hmm. then everything changed in terms of traveling and he just stayed in one place and okay. and then um slowly but surely i realized oh, this is different. And now it was just Satvagoon and all, there wasn't the crowds of the people, we weren't flying around. And it was like the taste that you had for reading and chanting. And um, yeah, I got to see that, oh, I, I wasn't uh, as deep, as fixed as I was. You, you, know? you, you mean all you had left to do was the reading and the chanting because you weren't traveling. Yeah, he was convalescing. He wasn't doing anything. You know, right. I kind of, you know, served the meals, washed the clothes. But other than right. that, there was nothing. Yeah. And um, that's fine for people in Satvagun, you know, that peace and that quiet. But I was a young man of 27 or 28 or something. Right, right. Still got a whole life ahead yeah. of you. <laughs> yeah. And, and energy and... Um, 
that was an interesting time. And I, I uh, started to realize this is not sustainable. Yeah. I started to, my mind started to get disturbed and started to become irritable and, you know, frustrated. And, you know, I, I, I think, you know, maybe even like critical of Marge in my brain, in my mind or something. Mm-hmm. But eventually I realized, oh, this is, I can't stay. Right. And I told him, you know, I, I got to go. Um, did you have a talk with him about, you know, why? And did he have any, any input on that? Um, what I look back now on is that the relationship with the guru, I don't know what, it, for, for converts, converts are like, are like Srila Prabhupada disciples. We just dive in and we give up everything. And it's like the guru is God. And we just, the, the, now mature, I realize I should have had more open discussions with my guru. Uh-huh. I should have, you know, been more mature and had, you know, talked about these things more openly. Right. So I didn't really discuss enough or it was, the relationship was also so, you know, I was just this new, I traveled with him as Buck to Michael and then uh-huh. I got initiated with him, but I was so brand new. I, I knew, and he was such an advanced, that it, it wasn't, it wasn't, um, the open relationship which I have now where right. I can see yeah really. I can see that uh-huh. yeah so I didn't really discuss enough and they I should have um right but I, I mean he, he said yeah you can go you know okay. and um yeah and and then I left and then uh the I had I needed to earn some money to pay back some of the travel money I'd spent traveling all around and things like that so I just thought I would get back into a, to the agencies just for a while uh-huh. while living in the ashram in Cape Town and um, then take it from there. But truthfully, I knew that this was it, that this, I, I wasn't, I was going to get back into the material world, which was, yeah. When you say that, <laughs> that's as, as in, what do you mean by that? Get back into the material world. Um, I didn't think I'd be able to maintain my vows and be, um, there had been indications when we had slowed down where that I realized, oh, a lot of the stuff I thought that I'd completely beat, you know, that I, that I was a purified monk who would only continue advancing. I realized, oh, maybe that there's still some work to be done on some base kind of like attachments. Yeah. Leaving. I kind of had a, I thought that this might be a problem. You know? mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, so you had that that feeling and uh, you did rejoin the agency and uh, what, what went on from there? Well, that was, so I got an apartment, I lived, I lived at, the, at the ashram and I started working and I would come back and it was so overwhelming for me. Um, I would come back like and lie on my bed after a day at the agency and my wide eyed, completely like blown away by how mad the world was. Because uh-huh. I was completely open, you know, I was purified, my heart was open. I'd been around these sweet, kind people, you know, and I just went thrown straight back into the material world. Right. And right. The agency people were just normal, you know having a laugh, like, you know, whatever, doing their stuff. For me, it was just so blunt and so harsh. And 
you know, I was overwhelmed. And uh, it's like you're an astronaut, re-end the re-entry, and yeah. <laughs> you're, yeah, you're thrown back into the the mix. I mean, it must have been a culture shock. Yeah, it was just too abrupt. Um, so eventually, I had to harden up, you know, and just shut, close up, and you know. I remember like kind of, I was too earnest and too sincere. Like people would talk to me and I would like look into their eyes and like speak to them like, a, you know, like, but people aren't, they don't want any of that. They want the surface thing. Right. So yeah. I hardened up and um, I moved out of the temple and I got an apartment next to the temple and I stayed close, but slowly but surely, like my practices started to dwindle and I became weaker and you know, the next thing you knew, I knew I was just kind of a normal person again, you know, uh -huh. and um, it was a problem because I felt, I eventually, I, I, went, I, we were, I remember the one time we went hiking with some of my friends and then someone brought out a joint and then I got stoned and just like that, I'd broken my vows and hmm. that started a period of, um, of several years of, a difficult time trying to re-enter the world um, and trying to find my place because Which I had dreams, you know, and that was difficult. Right. And, and I'm sure we'll get to this, but looking back, I, I bet those were very important building blocks to your overall understanding of, of bhakti and all that, yeah. would you say? Yeah. Unfortunately, I mean, my guru Maharaj used to say that good experience what does he say um, good judgment comes from experience right experience comes from bad judgment mm. so, so i had to go and make some mistakes yeah to learn oh those are mistakes like right. get the vegan of it the 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 realized knowledge not just the book knowledge um, right so uh, yeah, it was crucial. It was, it was, um, it was, it was profound. I'm, I got sick. I, my lung collapsed. I had, um, I was really, a, like I call it like a lost ghost. I was just wandering around. I was neither in the spiritual world with the devotees. I was neither in the material world. I, I grew contentious of the material world because I was, because of who they were. And I had no nuance or kindness towards them because I was, unkind to myself uh -huh. i was envious of the devotees because i couldn't be that and it was a real period of wandering around in, in the wilderness unsure of how to be and um lost uh yeah yeah i could it's actually a a theme that i've heard come back many times um especially with second generation devotees who are born and raised with these high standards and then they do feel like they have inclinations for this other part of life and you're kind of stuck in the middle. So it's interesting how you've also had that experience. Yeah, in quite an extreme way with mm. being with my grandmother. That was such an intensive period and I, I grew so much and learned so much. But then also, you know, experiencing material life. So intensely right. too. So that, um, yeah, that was a, interesting period and it took a while i mean the one thing was i remained close to the devotees i lived close i did service um and i re remained close with my guru Maharaj. yeah and i was careful to not 
let my mental kind of offenses become into manifest in reality. Like I was always super favorable and I always consider myself a devotee. And um, some, I never thought I'd be able to chant again or do anything again. I just, because how, how did I ever do that anyway? So that was madness. But somehow my Guru Maharaj helped me and he gave me some, um, I won't mention them now because it was personal for me and I don't know if it's going to be personal for everybody, but he gave me some kind of leeway on certain things. And that, that there was somehow there was a shift. There was a mm. shift by his mercy and I was able to chant my rounds again and I was able to get like clean and sober and um, I was able to just get back on the path yeah. and it's a much more loving and open heart and a much more gentle kind of mood towards myself. Mm. And um, because I started chanting again, my 16 rounds, um, you know, it's a very powerful mantra. <laughs> it does its stuff. And I was, I got back to, you know, normalcy and I started to integrate these two worlds a little bit more, you know, and realize I'm one person. I'm neither, not either or, and I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a person of multitudes as we all are. And it's, and Krishna loves me unconditionally and my Guru Maharaj loves me unconditionally. And I started to kind of be kinder to myself about this. And um, it's, it's beautiful that that was uh, kind of triggered by your relationship with your spiritual master. I, I find that really um, inspiring and so uh, warming and comforting that um, your guru you know, was able to take the time and see where you're at. And he, you know, expertly and just tailored for you, knew how to give you the guidance that would bring you back, even though you felt, you know, like you said, how, how could I ever go back to doing that? Yeah, it's kind of miraculous. But I think that's the power of the devotees and of Krishna and of the holy name that it can do that. It can take blind lepers and make them like able people. And um, I asked for help. And I think that's an important thing. Mm. Sometimes we're so full of shame and guilt and oh gosh, because the standard is so high. Right. And we such a high standard, which I think is sometimes a mistake that we need to lower the bar actually, because even the most the smallest element of bhakti can be so powerful right encourage that level because sometimes the bar is so high that people feel i cannot live on this high and i feel shame and, and regret that i cannot and guilt so therefore i just leave completely right but because of my kind of bold arrogance i kind of stayed and like i you know i was bold enough to stay and to ask for help and you know, I guess honest, you know, I, 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 and so that, and then, you know, marriage and, and the process is so powerful that it can do that. Yeah. So that, yeah. Mm, that's so such that, a, that's such a nice uh, observation, you know, about the high standards that we all aspire for. And we're so grateful for knowing what it actually takes, you know, that, that is so important. And I think that's what distinguishes Krishna consciousness is, we don't take it lightly, you know, like you said, you could see in your spiritual master, this man is taking it seriously. And that's what attracted you. And that's what made it real for you is you could see the depth and the heaviness of what this actually takes. So in that sense, I find the standards very attractive and important. And that's just what it is. 
But at the same time, like you said, bhakti is so powerful that by the expertise of, you know, advanced devotees who we can become friends with, whether it's spiritual master or, you know, our shiksha gurus, they can, they can kind of bring it down to our level in an encouraging way. And we can just kind of rebuild on that. And so, yeah, thanks for pointing that out. Yeah. I mean, on that point, it's, it's, it's like that. So any bit of bhakti can be very, very powerful. Yeah. So that encouraging that any bit, anything, come anything, just a tiny bit can transform your life. Yeah. That open inclusiveness is, um, a very, is very effective and I think is a stronger way for us to preach yeah. than the four regulative principles or the 16 rounds or the... I mean, frankly, I've struggled my whole life in this process because I'm not a Brahmin and this is largely Brahminical behavior, getting up early, the study of Shastra, Satvagun, you know, chanting mantras, worship, it's for Brahmins. Right. I'm not a Brahmin, and I've always struggled to fit into that, pro, into the into the mold. But it's not the process is so broad; it's not limited to that. And I think that's an important element that really helped me. That I realized I, you know, that I don't need to be that person. I can be me and still perform bhakti and still make progress mm -hmm. and, and not be on consider this different or anyway you'll eventually get to the real thing this is the real thing me presenting me trying to offer something to krishna right. you know at whatever stage i am or whatever nature i am or whatever ashram i am and i think the more we encourage that of people the less kind of shame and guilt we may have about falling sh short of a platform which is exceedingly high and for a very small kind of percentage of person um, because ultimately bhakti is for everybody and everybody can perform it at any stage right right great so i do want to try to get into a little bit of how you developed into from the uh, advertising agency into now being a film director because i know a lot of devotees will be interested sure. and fascinated by that whole side and of course i don't want to lose sight of you know, how this uh, ties into your, your bhakti practice. But maybe you can just tell us a little bit how you uh, eventually became what you're doing now, which is a film director. You've, you've done a few uh, pretty big time movies with some famous actors and, uh, and you're a screenwriter. Could you tell us a little bit about all that? Yeah. Um, yeah, so when I left, one thing that I realized, that my guru much said to me, okay, now you should do something for Krishna. And I was pretty open-ended. And I was like, I guess, I, yeah, I should just kind of step out the way and let Krishna reveals. And he said, no, no, like you do something. He's like, really? Hmm. And I thought, okay, I'll make movies for Krishna because I wanted to get into the movies and um, the advertising was, you know, there's always a client. And so I went back and I wrote, um, uh, a movie about a young man who goes to India to find himself. <laughs> it's a, it was a comic tragedy. Um, and I try to get that made. And I um, obviously now- A little bit autobiographical there? Very much so, of course. <laughs> and obviously now, like I never, because of where I am now, I would never have written that movie because that movie would never get made. I understand right. much more now. Right, right. 
doesn't get made. But um, so basically I got, I started screenwriting and then I got some, I won some awards and then I got some government grant and then I shot my, my first movie in South Africa, which was, you know, it did well um, with the critics. It was well received. I got, we won awards at the SAFTAs, the South African Film Awards. What, what movie was that? Called Retribution. Retribution. Yeah. And that played in theaters and it, it was great. And then I got an agent and a manager in Hollywood and I wrote a movie, wrote an, I wrote a few other movies which didn't get picked up, but it got me noticed. And then I wrote Vehicle 19, which um, went all around town in Hollywood and it got- Who are um, some of the actors in that movie? Well, that was Paul Walker, the, the guy from Fast and the Furious. Right. So um, I, that script went around town in Hollywood and I got um, attention from that. Mm -hmm. And then we got um, a, a well-known Hollywood producer on board to produce it. And then we went and go and got Paul and- um, we got, you know, lots of money to do it. And then I directed that and that was quite a big movie. Um, and then I had- So all that really stemmed from your experience as a writer for the, the advertising industry. And then yeah, you, you must've also had this just kind of creative talent and desire inside you. Is that something you had growing up as a kid, you know, writing stories and where did the creativity come from? Yeah. So. I've always had that, like visually I've always, so I write and I direct. So the the visual side I've always had too. I kind of, if I look, if I walk in a room and it's, there's like a green wall and like a, you know, like a dark blue chair or, and then there's like a yellow or so I see a certain color thing and that, that immediately, oh, that works or that doesn't work or uh -huh. the composition of this works. It's just somehow like a musician will, hear a car drive past and he will, you know, think of that as like the bass or something. So musicians have that. So visually I right. had the visual side. Okay. And then on the writing side, um, I somehow could tell a story and that had, I got trained in advertising and then I wrote scripts and somehow it came, I got, I, I, could, I could do it. Um, right. Yeah. So I had that creativity and I also, you know, I'm kind of an outspoken person who tells everyone what to do. So directing, <laughs> directing wasn't such a leap for me. Um, so were you the director for uh, the first film, Retribution, or just the writer? Yeah, yeah I was the director of that. And so is I, that something that happens pretty uh, commonly, that the writer could be the director as well? Or did you have to somehow bid to get the position? Or how did that well, work? I actually, I went and directed TV commercials while I was writing movies just to kind of get some money. I see. Um, so that directing TV commercials helped me be in line to direct my first feature film. Okay. Um, but directors, the thing is you kind of have to just go, I'm a director and I want you, there's a certain boldness you've got to have and a certain kind of decisiveness that you need to show people. And so you've got to be quite strong about that. Uh -huh. so I did that and, and because I'd written it, I was able to kind of make myself direct. And because I did the first one, I was able to then direct, because when I was going to direct Paul Walker, they were like, who is this guy? We don't know him and everything. So again, you have to kind of convince Paul and Paul's agent and his manager and everybody that you know what you're doing and then the money right. people you have to convince. And, you know, I always was hoping 
I've always hoped my whole life to be creatively in a position where nobody can tell me what to do and I can just do whatever I want. But <laughs> I don't think that exists, you know. Right. So you're always you always have to convince the money people that you know what you're doing. It's just right. So do you gravitate to a particular genre of movies, would you say? Well, what has happened is that um, what I've learned, um, and so this is, this is the one of the things that you and I talked about earlier, was like to, to be successful in the material world, you have to learn the rules of that, of that thing. You have right. to learn the rules of, of the material world. Right. So what I mean, my guru much told me that, too, because in the beginning, when I first started directing and having some control, like I would get the devotees to cater. I would put the devotees in the commercials. I would, you know, I called my company Krishna Smiles, Flowers Bloom. I was really like piling it on and I was getting a lot of pushback. Like yeah. crew were like, we don't want to eat vegetarian foods, you know. Right. And my guru might said, just be good at your job. And that was a very, very important and pivotal moment for me where I became good at my job and I wasn't like trying to use that as a medium to preach because I knew that could come or would come. And I was also doing other service elsewhere and my job could just be my job and I could do it properly. And that was actually going to be enough. Yeah. And I also, I remember um, Bhaktivedya Purumaj saying that you have to learn the rules of the material world to be successful in the material world. Yeah. But there are a lot of times I, I find um, devotees doing creative things where they, they don't follow the rules properly and they think that because it's Krishna consciousness, the Shakti of Krishna will break through the material and make successful. But that hasn't been my experience and it hasn't been the experience of the people that I've seen yeah. become successful that they've learned the rules of whatever they're doing and they become good at those rules, the material rules. Right. And the Krishna conscious part of it, that's almost separate, you know, yes. and you can't really expect Krishna to, to do that part. We have to do our part. Yeah. Um, yeah. I had, so, so after, um, so just getting to, so your point about commercial, what, what, what do I gravitate towards in terms of the yeah. way I work? Ultimately, mm -hmm. I've always wanted my work to mean something, but it's not so easy because like, first of all, who's going to give you money, $10 million to write a movie about Krishna? Right. It's a business and that's not following the laws of this. So you have to be intelligent how you put that in, if you're going to put that in. And yeah. that's a nuanced thing. And it's taking me a lot of time. I'm finally now getting to a point where I have a little power in the business where I can start doing more of that but mm. that that's a separate thing I think what's important for, for for what was important for me and for those who want to be in the, the, the arts is to learn the skills of the arts properly um, you know ultimately as devotees we know that for that for you to be successful you need three things one is your endeavor and the other is you got to have the karma and then the other is you have to do it at the right time mm -hmm. and the only thing of those three that you control is your endeavor so the job of even of the artist is to just sit at his desk and to do his work whether the the inspiration comes because inspiration is descending 
it comes down upon we cannot go and get it it's not coming from us so the, the artist's job is nuts and bolts you sit at the keyboard and you bang away or you play the guitar or whatever you do or you paint the paint it's very nuts and bolts and we do our endeavor you're either going to have the karma for it or you're not and you cannot change that and also the timing you may have the karma and you may be doing the endeavor but you may be doing it at the wrong time and it won't work so which brings us to what happened with my career so after vehicle 19 uh let me just uh, reflect on that for for a second because it's an important point and i really appreciate it um i think this is in many ways uh the next step for the movement for us to not compromise in any way the previous forms of preaching but but these rules of operating the material world that you're pointing out are so important where we really focus on that and give it the time that it needs to become expert in our individual fields of work, whatever our careers might be, whatever creative talent we, we have, and really focus on that um, before we can try to, you know, be bold um, with some kind of direct Krishna conscious preaching through that platform. It's so important for us to recognize that. And, um, and like you said, you know, after I don't know how many years you've been a director, but you're saying just now you're starting to find how you can, through some nuance, incorporate a little bit of, you know, maybe a spiritual concept in, in one of your films. So yeah, thank you for, uh, for that point, which is very important. Yeah, and also sometimes you don't have to, you can just have a job. And if your job is a movie director or you write books or you do music or whatever, that's fine, that's fine. Right. You know, it, it's, um, it's also okay to have a job and then your preaching can be that you, you know, you raise nice children and you, you love your wife, you know, and you're kind to your neighbor and you personally have your own sadhana where you're trying to get in touch with Krishna and trying to develop a relationship with him. Mm -hmm. um, we, we're a bit blunt sometimes on the preaching and sometimes yeah. like there's this Christian edict which says one should preach the gospel at all times. And on important occasions, one and on rare occasions, one should even use words. Yes, it's your example as a person that's actually going to do more than me writing a book about you know, or directing a movie about Krishna and Arjuna on the battlefield because that can be really misinterpreted. You know, yeah. Uh, I, I heard recently that Prabhupada said he defined preaching as knowing what to say and what not to say. Right. Yeah, there's a nuance to it. And that requires maturity and humility and also understanding sometimes maybe I'm not the person to do this, you know. Right. I find it's interesting with Janavi how she's doing it because, you know, she's following the rules. She had publicity shots done, you know, she's, she's, she's doing things. She's collaborating with famous artists, but she's right. also you know, doing like 15 minutes of the straight Hare Krishna Maha Mantra, you know, and that comes from her experience of how to do this and um, from trial and error, like what works and what doesn't work. And it's this, it, it's, it takes time to, as artists or as anybody to learn how to preach or how to live a life in the world, just to live a life successfully. And um, that's been interesting to see for me which leads me so yeah so after vehicle 19 um i then my next movie which i've only just shot and finished i just returned from canada 
like last week uh -huh. finishing um, my third movie. Um, I spent nine years trying to make another movie and I, wow. and I, I couldn't. And um, let me just show you something here. I don't know if you can see that, those piles there. Yes. So those are scripts. Those are 30 scripts. I don't think I think those are even all of them. Those are 30 scripts that I wrote uh -huh. in that nine-year period. And everybody said no. Wow. It was so. That's an amazing um, career uh, yeah. rhythm. <laughs> it's maddening. I mean, a lot of artists know feast or famine. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's just like that. And it's a, if, unless you can cope with some people just know their nature and they're like, oh, well, I, I don't want to be insecure about when my next paycheck's coming. So yeah. they take that job. But I, I kind of accepted and I lived with it. It was still at nine years. It was really difficult. I was going through a very difficult astrological period where everything was blocked. But the point that I want to make about this is that I still wrote the 30 screenplays. I still did my job. And that, that thing about being attached to the results or not, you still have to do your job. And I find one thing that I've grown a little bit and I find sometimes artists who are not, who don't have the discipline, who haven't learned spiritual disciplines, they don't personally have discipline in general because art is generally rajastic, which is creation and it's, it's sexy and it's enjoyable and you start something and the beginning's great. But then the satvagun, the, the maintaining and the finishing and the correcting is really hard for us yeah. and often don't finish things. But somehow because of my training, um, I was able to push through and to keep working and to remain encouraged. Because also I was getting fed spiritually by my practices. Right. So if I was just not, had nothing, it was just my career defining me, that would be terrible. I don't know how I would have got out of bed. But you know, we as a family, we lived in Mayapur for several years and I was engaged in service. and but I was still doing my job because that was my job and my duty was, and I was kind of shown, this is what you do. And whether the results come or not, what else can I do? This is what I do. Right. So that was a pretty interesting time for me. Yeah. Um, now that's, that's interesting how you define success um, very much based on our endeavor and understanding that timing and karma are important ingredients of that as well. And of course that ties in completely with the Bhagavad Gita and uh, not being attached to, to our, the fruit, the, the results of our activities and just focusing on what we know we have to do. Yeah. Yeah. You can't, well, what I, the big thing I learned is that I cannot control this during right. the nine years I was brought to my knees really. Yeah. I'm kind of, strong world and kind of manipulative and um i really go for stuff and um i can't i realize i can't take on a planet like shani or i can't take on the universe right. i mean i thought i could and i tried and i just broke myself trying to do it and i learned crucial crucial lessons of humility i mean i still have so far to go but i i learned some things which have been very helpful to me because when I did this next movie, which was very intense, we shot in, in, in LA in the middle of the pandemic. We were getting tested three times a week. You know, if we'd got one positive test, we would have shut down the movie. I had actors, you know, Emile Hirsch and Kate Bosses who have 
careers where you barely get a window with them. And if I would have lost them, I would have lost the movie. Mm. I was more, I was stressed, but I was just more able to trust, even if it fell apart, that I was going to be okay. Like I wasn't defined by what was happening externally. Those nine years had shown me how horrible it can be, how, how difficult, how, you know, and I really, I still survived. I still had relationships. I still had my beautiful wife and my beautiful children. I still had this incredible community. And so that, that I, I, as much as I don't like it to admit this, sometimes pain and suffering are really good teachers. Right. And yeah, yeah I, I'm sure it's uh, uh, quite an quite an experience of uh, patience and, and humility and, and trust in Krishna for both you and your whole family to be in a career where you can go nine years without a film and to, to have to sustain yourself like that. Yeah, I really, um, I, it was, I was, it was interesting. I mean, I uh, had to look at that. Like I was like, okay, I'm the breadwinner, you know, do we have to move back to South Africa? Um, I mean, the thing is you always have enough money and you never have enough money. It really depends on how you look on it. Of course, extreme wise, you can be, there can be problems where you just don't have enough and you can have too much, but generally it's our relationship with it or our relationship with Krishna or it's trusting how safe and protected we are even if things are going badly even if I'm you know not working in, in something I want to do and getting you know a thousand no's over nine years right. or I'm in, I have a cancer diagnosis or how do I see Krishna's love in all of these things how do I feel protected and how can I trust that I'm going to be taken care of because sometimes externally it looks like we're not taken care of yeah you know so my whole relationship because i was praying to krishna during those times krishna please give me these things i need these things that help this movie go through and and it was really interesting my relationship with krishna where i was pleading for things and wanting him to come in involved and give me material things and i learned a lot about krishna and my relationship and actually he doesn't do that yeah it's not no, it's not it's not it's not our philosophy it's not it's not our relationship he's there to help us and love us but not to fulfill our material desires he may do it right but it's not really the person to approach if you want that stuff That's right bhakti. um and that was interesting and i realized at some stage oh i want peace and happiness more than i want krishna mm -hmm. and that was sobering um, but it was important to realize where I was at. And then I, yeah, it's, it's all so fascinating when you realize how desirous we are of certain things and how business-like my relationship was with Krishna and is with Krishna and how I need, how I didn't want to live like that with him. Also, he wasn't answering the, the prayers. He just wasn't. Right. Right. And you went, what do I do now? Where do I go, you know? Shiva, yeah. you know, like where do you go? <laughs> I was I was thinking about Lord Shiva. <laughs> yeah. So, and you realize how frustrating it is to not get material desires fulfilled and where the limits that one will go. And yeah. also then you realize how people lie, cheat, and steal to get because you're so 
desperate for these things. And then, then, so I saw myself in those nine years, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's really um, admirable that you're so inquisitive and just observant of your own inner workings when it comes to um, how you see your life through the, the spiritual lens and you're very analytical um, of yourself. So I, I find that to be an important part of uh, one's journey to to really observe what are we going through how are we responding to these events in our life and are we um, applying the the philosophic principles of bhakti in a way that makes sense also at least just to be honest like realize okay i'm going to krishna for material things right that too so i'm frustrated because krishna's not giving them to me Right. And then you can see, oh, what's my relationship here? Oh, and then so that was, uh, yeah, I, I feel the honesty is important because you Absolutely. can't really progress unless we're least acknowledging where we're at. Right. And then you know, they say you can't solve a problem unless you first acknowledge it exists. Yeah. And I could see this is a problem here with right. my relationship with Krishna, with my relationship with the material world, like. How does this, how do I solve this? Hmm. Thank you. I want to touch on a, a few more points. Um, so if you don't mind, let me try to jump to uh, some, some thoughts that uh, I had before the interview, and I want to make sure we cover them. Having worked with, uh, with celebrities, um, you must have a pretty good insight on, you know, what's it like to be a celebrity? Um, you know, we just have this idea of what we see on TV and uh, maybe the, the tabloids of what it means to be a celebrity. Do you have any insights you can share from having spent time with some famous actors and have you learned anything about, you know, the kind of lives they're living and uh, yeah. anything we can learn from that? Um, it's funny because also there's a kind of a, a parallel sometimes between the spiritual master because of all the worship, you know, that, mm -hmm. the, that a film star can get and the spiritual master gets and they often end up in a bubble of yes. Everyone just says yes to whatever they want, you know. Uh -huh. He's got the glass and his finger, go and people are like, it's an unhealthy thing. And then the same with the spiritual people. But of course, the spiritual teachers have daily practices which give them perspective. But it's still um, that fame and that, that where people are coming to you like that, it's a burden. It's a burden. It's really burdensome. Um, and they, everybody wants something from a famous person. They can't have clean relationships hmm. because just like Paul Walker coming to drinking your, drinking a Coke is advertising. <laughs> he can't just, you know, so the, every, every relationship is, is a strain. Um, and the problem with the famous people is that they have everything and they're still not happy. Right. If you don't have fame and money, you can still think, oh, if I get fame and money, I'm going to be happy. And therefore, I'm enthusiastic to pursue fame and money because right. I'm happy. Therefore, I'm enthusiastic for life. So, but when you have fame and money and you're still not happy, it's a pretty bleak place. Mm -hmm. And um, so a lot of them are like that. They, their karma is so good. They don't suffer so much in terms of, you know, health or poverty or whatever. Right. But they don't have um, fulfillment because they don't really have relationships. Because ultimately, it's relationships. In, in everything, it's relationship. 
unless you have relationships, you cannot be happy. You know, so they don't, it's hard for them to have real deep connective relationships. Um, I feel for them um, to be in the spotlight, that spotlight like that too. Uh, a lot of artists, I mean, famous people, they're actors, so they're sensitive people. Um, and, but they live in such an artificial world, it's just hard for them to connect and to be grounded and to be satisfied. Hmm. Um, I mean, we know, and I've seen it, the pursuit of that kind of fame, it's, they hate it after a while. It's really, they, they want the power that the fame gives them and the money and the opportunity to do things. They don't want all the, the, the actual reality of the fame, the people and the, you know, the neediness. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel for them. I'm, I, it's helped me realize that you, you don't want, you think we want that stuff, but it never, it'll never satisfy these places we think it's going to satisfy. Ultimately, we all have to come to the realization you're not going to fill the God-shaped hole in our heart with anything other than God. You know, it's right. not. It seems like there's quite a few celebrities over the years that have come to the spiritual platform um, from that that standpoint of their own life experience and having kind of reached the peak of material uh, success. You know, of course, George Harrison is the number one example, but. There's many others, you know, that I've seen have come in contact with Bhakti, whether it's Madonna or Russell Brand and many others. Um, is there a particular kind of uh, common point that you, you might see of, you know, what helps a celebrity come in contact with the spiritual concept and, and those who don't? Um, I mean, it does help, as we're saying that they have experienced everything so they realize none of this makes me happy so they don't have that illusion anymore that that stuff can make them happy so that it does make them right right Often good karma is too good in some ways so they don't suffer enough mm. to actually make the, the serious endeavor to actually go deep into spiritual life i see but yeah i think they are ready for it and i think the devotees are also a good devotee like Janavi, for example, who um, deals with, you know, she's in touch with famous people now. She doesn't want something from them. Yeah. She's a self-satisfied person who has something to give them, which mm -hmm. is very, very, very valuable. And they can see that with her that, you know, because of the sincerity and the purity and the Shakti, you know, it's very, very powerful. So when the, those people come in contact with advanced people, they are genuinely impressed by yeah. these, because they are impressive people, the devotees, you know, right. Right margin, these people who are doing this work. And mm. of course, the philosophy is very, very powerful. It's just it's powerful. And they can accept, oh, material things won't make you happy. Mm. Where it's harder for an, a middle class or a poorer person to accept that because they still think, yeah, but it can so the key is just they need to get Michael DeWill for their, their director. I don't know if I come into contact. Ganesham <laughs> Priya is great. And a lot of people doing that really nicely in Hollywood now. They're coming in touch with a lot of these people. Yeah. Now, I wanted to ask you, you kind of touched upon it earlier about, you know, movies and our Krishna conscious topics. There's so many stories you know, yeah. in our tradition from the Bhagavatam to the Mahabharata, they're just begging to be made into a, a Hollywood film. Um, 
I understand that obviously you got to learn what it takes to get to that point, but it's still, I, I feel there's just an ocean of separation for us to actually one day get to that. From your experience, is it something that's in the realm of reality? Because uh, I'm sure so many devotees are always thinking about that. Uh, no, it's totally, it's totally, it's totally possible. Absolutely. We're, we're, we're one movie, we're one book, we're one song away from it. Mm, now. That's great to hear. But and yeah, what do you think it takes to get there from, from where we're at now? Communicated in a way that's commercially viable for the people who are going to invest. If someone's going to invest $50 million in doing a TV series on the Ramayan, which I just want to plug Brenda Sess book. Yes. Um, they're so good. And, you yeah, know, the, her trilogy on the Ramayan. Yeah. See this fire. Yeah. We, her, she and I were talking about how to do, it, and we actually wrote a pilot for a TV series because that was excellent. The, we had her on the show actually a few episodes ago. She's great. And she really knows how to write. And that story is fascinating. And it was the first time I'd read a devotee written thing where I realized, Oh, this has potential. Wow. Um, a lot of the other stuff, it just hasn't followed the material rules enough. Right, right. I think we're just, we're one away in some form. Um, and it just has, it's just, it's timing. I think the karma is there. I think the endeavor is there. It's just a matter of timing. And I totally think it will happen. Um, that would be amazing. Yeah. I just, I don't think it will happen the way people, will, devotees think will happen. Right. You know, the Ramayana is a very difficult. What is the spiritual message that you want people to get out of the Ramayana? That's not so clear. There's so many, right. Yeah, and like, there's some difficult portions of that book. So we're going to just change that to make it more. It's not that easy. I have been personally thinking for 10 years about if I was given, you know, $50 million, what movie would I make? That was my next question. (laughs) I don't know what is the right message to tell. Right. You know, the Gita is, is what, um, do your duty without being attached to the results. I mean, how, so then, okay, I got to make that interesting. Is that the message we think is important or do hmm. you just want to go Krishna Leela? It's not that easy. Right. I mean, that, that's a really good insight that that's, that should be the starting point is what, what is the message? And we start yeah. from there and then see what's, what can be done by applying those, those rules of the, the film. Yeah, the way what's the spiritual and what's the material. So like, can you like embed, um, I mean, I recently wrote a movie about a woman who, um, it's like she realizes she has to fight. She's a, she's a, a woman who's been taken advantage of and she realizes she has to fight, which is Bhagavad Gita. Like it's, it's Arjuna has to fight. Mm-hmm. So they, you, know, you have to find the material. Is it a thriller? Like a, and then within the thriller, you've got a spiritual message I think it's there. I'm personally have always been interested in trying to do this. It's just not so easy. And it's, you know, you have to convince some people to give you lots of money. Um, I, I'm sure it will happen. And I, and I look, it's happening slowly, but surely, you know, when you look at the, the way that, you know, Rinder's books, how well they're written, you know, Janavi doing things with Willow, you know, it's happening slowly, yeah. but surely. You know, Ganesham Priya, you know, like, Six million um, Instagram followers, or something. You know, yeah. it'll happen. And, and yeah. it'll- that's that's really encouraging to to hear that from someone who's on the inside. Um, 
Tell us a little bit about uh, your latest movie, The Immaculate Room. When and is that coming out and where can we find it? And what's going on nowadays with uh, actually going to see a movie in the theaters versus the, you know, the Netflix and Amazons and all that? Yeah, so the whole traditional model of Hollywood has changed and it was starting to change before COVID. Uh-huh. Um, with the streamers, Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, there's so many, HBO Max, there's just so many of these streamers who are paying a lot of money for content. They will take Wonder Woman, which is a theatrical, it's a huge movie, and they will, they're going to start launching, they are launching movies purely on streaming platforms and foregoing the whole theater model. And then when COVID hit, where they shut down the theaters, it just accelerated that lean towards um, the streamers. So we, we just shot the Immaculate Room. We shot in LA and then we did this special effects in the post-production in Toronto. It's just been done. So we're now entering in film festivals uh, around the world and then we will sell it and then we don't, we'll see who buys it. Sometimes the model is you pre-sell the movie before you've shot it. But because there's so little content now because of COVID, it's better to have a finished product that you can then get a higher premium for. Okay. So, it's called The Immaculate Room. It has Emile Hirsch and Kate Bosworth in the leads. Hopefully it will be out in a month or two. I'm finished. I have one more review online, um, but it's pretty much just done. It's done. How long was the overall process? I know you you said you started off in, uh, was it in LA and then you ended up in uh, Canada? Pre-production and I shot in Hollywood, yeah. And then we I edited in Costa Rica for a couple of months and then I went to Toronto for a few months to finish the, the sound, the music and the, the score and the visual effects. Yeah, probably, and I wrote it, you know, it took me about three months to write it in a year in, in total about, yeah. Okay, great. Um, one last thing, perhaps, uh, when I asked what, uh, what should we name this episode? You said, well, let's call it the middle way from the Himalayas to Hollywood. Give us a little bit of a concluding thought on what you mean by the middle way. Uh, well, was, yes, for me, it was learned that I was one person. I wasn't too a divided soul. Um, and Satchinandan Swami always talks about when you go and chant, bring both of you there. Bring your low self. Mm. So we're not to separate. So um, learning to be kind to my lower self and to you know, that scared, frightened little boy who's full of shame and guilt and just to be kind to him and know that, you know, I'm one person who's loved in all my totality by Krishna and you needn't go too far extremes in any way. I, I personally feel that fanaticism is the greatest, is the worst thing in the world on any side. It's, it's a very unforgiving and unkind thing, you know, they say to love all, to understand all is to forgive all. You know, everybody is, is struggling with their conditioning. And if we can be more understanding of that, we can be more loving. And, and, that, and that starts with ourselves, you know. We sometimes quite harsh on ourselves. And to just understand that we're trying to do this. We're trying, we're making an effort and that effort is the most important thing. And we should be encouraged and we should be very, very happy that we've touched on this incredible process. We should be uh, confident and happy about it. In spite of all the times we stumble and fall, that, that's expected. 
it's right. expected to be in the material world and to be materially conditioned. So um, yeah, for me, my advice that I'd give myself all the time is to be kind myself, be kind to myself, even in my worst situations. Mm. I'm trying, you know, uh, and because Krishna is kind, Krishna is kind. Yeah. Mm. Thank you. And, uh, uh, you know, we're good friends. And uh, I always appreciated this, uh, this insight that you've always given me whenever I struggle a little bit with my own uh, Krishna consciousness and, you know, whether it's my sadhana or where I position myself, you've always emphasized that we should be kind to ourselves. And uh, I like what you mentioned, uh, you know, bring, bring both of you to Krishna when you go to the temple. That's a nice insight too. So, well, there you have it. Thank devotees. you. Um, if, uh, if you want to know more about Mukunda's creative mind, look up uh, the Immaculate Room when it comes out. And uh, it was really uh, an honor to have you with us and uh, to, to keep displaying the wonderful community members that we have here in New Raman Reiti. Thank you for moving here four years ago. It's so nice to have you with us Thank and uh, such a wonderful community we feel so fortunate to be here really yeah. such wonderful people we're very very grateful very special okay mukunda prabhu thank you again thank you we'll now see you soon hi krishna hi,